Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Drew Goddard's new thriller, Bad Times at the El Royale. The film follows seven strangers who meet at Lake Tahoe's El Royale, a rundown hotel with a dark past. As secrets come out and lives are entangled over the course of one night, everyone will have a last shot at redemption. In addition to Bad Times at the El Royale, Mr. Goddard's directorial credits include the feature film The Cabin in the Woods and the pilot and episodes of the series The Good Place. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Goddard spoke with director Matt Reeves about filming Bad Times at the El Royale. During their conversation, Mr. Goddard discusses how his background as a writer informs his directing, the importance of meticulous planning, a lesson he learned from Ridley Scott, and how he pitched the film to studios knowing it wasn't typical blockbuster fodder. Oh, All right. bless you. You were always my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, there's still time, guys. You can still. It's not a competition. Okay, hi. Hello, everyone. Hi. Lovely to see you all. Um, this is exciting for me because I've known Drew for a long time. We work together, and I consider him an incredible friend, and you're a true artist. I mean, the thing that I know about Drew, we first started working together on Cloverfield, and I just know the way he is as a creative person which is that he cares so deeply, and you can tell by what you just saw, which is that it, everything, and also, you know, you would know, like, the, the, I went to the premiere, uh, what was it a week ago, two weeks ago, they just, I'd never seen that before, literally the, the movie had just been finished, how, how many hours straight uh, did you wake eight, up? I, I think uh, I pulled a few all-nighters right at the end there, and I think it was eight hours before premiere, we finally delivered it. It was a wet print. Right, exactly. Yes. Literally, in the old days, it would have been. Was this on film? Uh, yeah, we, well, no. The, but it was it a wasn't DCP. projected. It was a okay. DCP, but okay. we shot on film, yeah. Right. Very, very amazing. Anyway, it's such a beautiful film. And I just, I, I mean, I, I know I've told you that. But um, I wanted to talk a bit about, because I know you in all kinds of capacities and as a person and I know how passionate you are, um, it's such an interesting path that this is your, this is the second film you've directed. And Cabin in the Woods, which is I, I'm sure everybody's seen, is a great movie. And this one is so different, but yet so totally you. And I know that in between, that you directed, and are you still working on in any capacity in, uh, in The Good Place? Yes. Which is like the tones of, of all of these things, you know, they're like, they, they encompass so much. And I guess I'm wondering, first of all, just about this film, how do, where did this come about? Like how did, because you write, obviously, you're, in a, you're an incredible writer. Um, but to write to direct, like, do you always write to direct? Like, when you're writing The Martian, either you writing from the same place saying, like, hey, this is what I would write. If I was going to go shoot it, I'd do it like this, and then Ridley Scott does whatever he's going to do. But that's, that's the way you write. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, I learned early, treat it as though you are directing. And not in a, not in a way that's um, 
that doesn't respect the director. I, I love directors, and when I'm writing, whether I'm writing for a director or myself, I treat it the same because I'm always trying to solve the problems that the director is gonna run into. I really think that's important to, to um, protect the director. And so, and you and I started, you know, on Cloverfield, which had a lot of, you know, tricky logistics. And I do feel like if you can help a director feel like he or she is not alone, it makes a huge difference because directing is so, it's so hard. And, and, and so I do try to treat every script as though I am directing, even if I know that I'm not going to, so that I'm conscious of, and it, it's, it's not just directing. I try to be conscious of the production designer's needs. I try to be conscious of the costume designer's needs. I try to be clearly conscious of the actor's needs for sure. Uh, so that your document goes to them and says, I, I've really thought your problems through and we will have new problems to solve, but at least know that I'm on your side. Right. And you are, you're, you're incredibly choosy. I mean, it's just true about who you, I mean, there, there are a number of films along the way that you were maybe considering doing, but then this ended up being the one which again came totally from you. What was it about, what was the nugget that said, okay, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of time between the two, you're like, I'm ready, I wanna do it again. And, and do you remember that first, just what the spark was that said, hey, this is what I wanna do? No, because, uh, boy, that's a good question. I, because I, te I start with the script and then not, I try not to worry so too much. So did you not know that you wanted to direct this for sure? or I, you weren't? Every script I do, I sort of assume I probably will direct right. and then somewhere along the line, either I go. The Martian you were going to direct. I, I was writing oh, okay, that, that's right. right. And so I sort of, th I always approach it that way, but I also think it's very important to treat the writer and the director very differently. So I, it's almost a weird uh, method style. I even dress differently. Like I, I, it's very important to me to separate the two things. What's the dress me. difference? So like, well, the writer looks like a writer, sweatpants and uh, you know all of the slovenliness of a writing of a writer, um, and just and try to you know it's the introverted side of the artist where you're just alone, um, just trying to try to struggle with your art, I suppose. And then and then the director is much more. I mean, for me, director the the, the directing side is much more about. The, extrovert, the extroverted side of the artist, right? And the, um, your job is very much to sort of nurture other artists in many ways. And so I treat that very differently, you know? And, and that I've learned that works very well for me uh, because the, there, it took me a while to understand that writing and directing are, are wildly different mm -hmm. and you have, to, you have to treat it that way. So this one, when you were starting the screenplay, just started with a passion for doing a crime thriller. You, it, wanted, you just thought it would be great to write and potentially direct it, and then this is the one that really felt like, no, what, what's the difference here between, why was it that you decided, God, this is the one, as opposed to, let's say, you're working on The Martian. I know that Emma would have loved you to have done that too, I remember now, so. Yeah, well, I, the, 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 not to get too um, inside baseball, but I, I was doing The Martian, and then I had a chance to do a Spider-Man film, and The Martian was gonna go second, and then right. we would do the Spider-Man film first, then Sony got hacked, and then suddenly I wasn't doing a Spider-Man film anymore, and I didn't want The Martian to go down, and Ridley read it and said, I wanna do The Martian, and I was like, I, I, here's the thing, I love writing, I actually love writing for other directors, when it's someone like you, or someone like Ridley Scott, it's actually wonderful, like I, I'm not, I've always rejected the idea of the disgruntled screenwriter. I, I, I love being, when I'm a screenwriter, I love being a screenwriter. So, how, I mean, how many times in your life are you gonna get to work with Ridley Scott? You just say yes when right. that comes up. So, and thank God I did, because he made me such a better writer, such a better director, such a better person just being around him. And so, so yeah, it's sort of, I don't know, filmmaking's so volatile. Like, it, it just is, and this business is so volatile. You just sort of, 
I've learned to just sort of go with it. You and then, go with the flow of what, and then when that moment strikes, you had a chance to make this. And the thing about directing is it's two years for me, the way I do it, I, I'm very intense. I, I, I can't do anything else when I'm directing. I'm not a person that can do lots and lots of different things. I, I focus very intensely. So it's two years of your life. And so part of it is just, you're like, okay, it's time. This is time to devote two years of my life to. And this one is very personal. This movie is very personal to me. For, for many different reasons, and so. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it started, it's funny, I write, I sort of write on instinct, certainly as I've gotten older, I trust that I'm writing on instinct more and not intellectualize. So it wasn't until, I, I thought about the script for probably two years, and then, uh, and then I try to write really fast once I get the outline right. Wrote the script for three weeks, so I started in November of 2016, so then I finished right before the holidays, and I, I grew up very Catholic. And I went home to see my mom, and I, I'm not Catholic anymore, but she, she likes to go to Mass, so we go to Mass. So I'm sitting there in Mass as I've just finished the script, and, I, and it just hits me. I go, oh my God, I, I just wrote the most Catholic movie ever. Oh, this entire movie, this entire movie is a Catholic. I, I'm clearly working through my Catholic childhood and the Catholic notions of right and wrong and, and spirituality, and I, didn't, I wasn't really aware that I was doing it. Um, because uh, again, I, don't, I try not to intellectualize what I'm writing. And so it, it, that, that was the first stage. And then, this is all small stuff, but um, it's, this is how the pot, this is what goes into the pot. I, um, you, know the, you know this 23andMe, do you know this? I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the genetic testing on a whim a few years back. I, uh, my wife and I did 23andMe, and it was in the early stages where you still got to this ending. You know, you get these results back of your genetic tests, and it's like, oh, you have brown hair, you have brown eyes. You're like, wow, this is all very accurate, great. Then you get to a, a thing that says, do not open this if you do not want to know. This is where the, the scary stuff is. Don't open this part of the, of the genetic testing wow. if you don't want to know your, your genetic you, you know, issues. They don't do that anymore, by the way. It, it only happened at the beginning when, when you got there in early. There were genetic issues that might be like something health-wise? Correct. Or? Right, okay. And I, I flip it over and it says I'm, I'm, I have a 50% chance of developing early onset Alzheimer's. Wow. And so it was one of those like, well, I probably shouldn't open to that. So it, <laughs> so and you know who, who knows how accurate this is, but it certainly. Do was you have Alzheimer's mind. in your family? We had we have Alzheimer's in our family, and so I've watched a lot of family members struggle with it, oh. and it's. I think that was very much on my mind as I was working on this and working on notions of faith and becoming a parent mm. is very much in this, and it all sort of goes into the stew, right? Mm. And so it all felt very personal, and 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 around then I was like, all right, this is it, this is the one, let's go. Wow, well, yeah. it comes through. I mean, I, you feel all of that. Um, so let me ask you this, when you're writing in that way, one of the things that struck me watching the movie a couple times is just the sheer, and I, I know this about you, but this one in particular is so meticulous. I mean, that plotting where you're going backward and forward and yet every detail, like it struck me when, at the premiere when uh, the, the ledger goes into the fire. I mean, I'd seen it before when you showed it to me, but then when I saw it then, it just, it struck me even harder just how, what a puzzle. This is what an incredible, intricate puzzle. And it made me think about the visuals, which I think are extraordinary. I think that the direction is just beautiful. And it's one of those things where you look at it and you go like, wow. And then you told me even when I came in, hey, I, I didn't get coverage on that. That's how I shot that. And I'm like, oh my God, you're out of your mind. So <laughs> the thing about it is, is that my, my question to you about that is, as you were writing this, and I know to some degree when you're writing, you do think about visuals, but were you thinking... Um, about the wonners? Were you thinking about um, just the, the, your, the visual approach? Was that 
embedded when you were writing? Did it, did it expand when you started to plan it out? And then I know I'd love to talk about how you actually did rehearse and got some of those shots. But let's, let's start with when you were writing, were you seeing these shots or a style or an idea about how the visual aspect of the film might work? Yeah, it, it, yes. I mean, I tend to think that way. Um, I tend to see, I mean, I'm a visual learner. I tend to see images. And when I, in scripts, even when I know I'm not directing, I still see it. I try to just write down what I see. And, and it, but it also develops over time. The way I tend to work is I, I, I get moments in my head, right? Um, there's just moments, and then I try to stitch the moments together. So I remember very clearly thinking about, oh, let's get a priest who's lying, and then he has to dig up the floor while the singer sings. I was like, that's a moment. Okay, we'll put that on the board. Okay, the priest is lying, so we should have a believer and the believer should die in his arms. Okay, that goes on the board, and the priest will, you know? And then, oh, we have the detective, and the detective will show up, and he will see everybody. That's interesting. Oh, it would be, it would be interesting if he saw everyone at once, and you went down the hall one by one to see everybody. Oh, so that's where the watching then, through the windows came? And then you're like, oh, I want to put them, the audience in the detective's shoes, right? Mm -hmm. I want you to feel what the detective is mm -hmm. feeling. So much of the movie to me is about empathy and how empathy changes and how much where who you who you thought you were empathizing with changes as it goes. And so a lot of this movie is about taking the time to be in someone's shoes. Um, and, and I felt early on that that I wanted to establish that to say, OK, we're going to watch these people and we're going to we're going to feel what it feels like to be a voyeur. And, and so I, I just felt like that would be the way to do that. And so these moments sort of go on the board and you you just start stitching them together. And then, and then, but similarly, you get in with your team and you get in with my extraordinary director of photography, Seamus McGarvey, right. and my extraordinary production designer, yes. Uh, uh, and my extraordinary uh, production designer, Martin Wist, and, and it all just starts happening and you just sort of organically feel these things out. And so when you had, because some of them, you would have to rehearse, and you told me this, so I'm just, I, I think this is just worth discussing because I, I found it so interesting. Those kind of shots take a tremendous amount of rehearsal. Um, and what kind of rehearsal period did you have? And did you do, you mentioned to me that you set up some of these shots in advance because you didn't get the kind of rehearsal period that you wanted. And how was that process of working? Because, by the way, on top of everything, I think the performances are extraordinary. And, and so to be able to do something that is um, very accomplished visually, but still to allow, in my experience, Actors being good is about also giving them some space so that those surprises can happen or the camera's not going to capture them. And yet, you're so meticulous. I'd like you to talk a little bit about how you were able to square that so that you could be meticulous visually and still give the actors the space they needed. And how did that evolve? It, I have to say it's the thing that changed the most after working with Ridley Scott um, and me because we came from TV. You and I sort of come from TV. And, and certainly the directors I worked with in TV you know, Joss Whedon, J.J. Abrams, there, there's something that happens in TV where, where you know, you, you, you have eight days to prep, maybe. Like, usually we had like three days to prep. And so a lot of what I witnessed directing early was people figuring things out 
in the set. moment, being in the moment, sort of showing up to set when the set is still being painted at the end and, and figuring out coverage. I kind of thought that's what directing was, mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, I thought that, and I, and I didn't, that made me very nervous because I thought, well, I'm, I'm young and green. I actually like to plan. I actually like that. But this is clearly what I, what I know that directing is. And I always thought there was something wrong with me for liking to plan. And then I got with Ridley and Ridley was the most meticulous planner I've ever seen. Yeah. Like he knew six weeks in advance of shooting something where every camera was going to be and where every lighting and I, which it, he did through boards. He or loves stills to or? sketch. He yeah. just sketches and, and then, and then does the overhead lighting plan. And cause he really likes to know when you, when you want to know where five cameras are, you need to know where your lights are going. And so he really was meticulous and I loved it. It was so calming to me to see like, Oh wait, no, that's, here's one of the greatest directors of all time. And right. he is planning so far in advance. And I, 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 that is a style that works better for me. And what I learned was the more meticulous I plan and prep, the more fun I can have on the day, the more I'm actually not worrying about where camera's gonna go or where lights are gonna go, I, it's done. And, and then I can just be with the actors. I can just be with the actors and we can say like, here's the camera, but don't worry about it. Let's just, let's just be here. It, it worked much better for me and it, it really changed the, direct, the, the way I approach this film. But some of those shots are, they're totally set dependent. Yes. So given, given your shorter schedule, you said in some cases you planned them out. Did you plan them out with, with stand-ins or work yeah. out some shots? Like what kind of shot in, from the movie might you have done that with? Like the, the, the hardest the, shot in the, the John movie Hamm is, is, yeah. the, is the corridor shot. Yeah. That shot probably took us eight months of prep because it was deceptively difficult. Um, because we it built, looks hard. We built the, it's harder than you think because yeah. we built, so we had, it, we had to build the entire set and we wanted to, because I wanted the set to be symmetrical yeah. and have indoor outdoor capability so I could control the weather. That meant that e everything that you see in that shot dictates the, the um, architecture of our sets. And it's one of those weird things when you, you, it sounds good when you write it out. Okay, well just, it'll be continuous and he'll just be, walk up and down the hall. But then you really get in the nuts and bolts and I, I wanted to see his reflection so I didn't have to cover the scene. I thought it'll only really work as a wonder if, if you can feel John's present and John can act because otherwise it's just gonna get real, Shot, right. real old real fast. I need to see John's emotion, which meant I have to see his reflections, which means if you can see his reflections, you can probably see the camera if you're not careful. Right. Then you also have Jeff digging up his floor. You have Dakota running outside in, into the parking lot. You have the room, the, the windows of the room, you have to figure out what lens you're on. All of these things dictate each other. If you're on a 40 or if you're on a 50, that determines how big our floor is, mm -hmm. right? So you have to figure all of these logistical things out. Thank God for Seamus McGarvey, um, part of why I hired him, other than the fact that he's, he's one of the greatest artists of our time, um, is that he's, he's very comfortable with these ambitious shots. He did the, the Atonement Dunkirk shot. Right. Like he is, he's extraordinary at figuring this out. And he figured out how to coat the, the mirrors the the glass with a special silver coating and put the mirrors on bevels so that we could as so cameras going by so we could shift it. so you won't wow. see the camera and you'll see john and to make it even more complicated cynthia has to sing the entire time live and so that means all of the stuff that we're doing we have to do silently because we have to figure out all of these because again it's one of those things had i known I never would have done this had I known. It's not like I knew it was going to be this complicated. It's just like, okay, you do it, and then you start figuring out how hard it is going to be um, as you're going, and then and then you're in too deep, so you're like, well, we're doing it anyway. Um, and, but I have to say it's really satisfying when it comes through. So, yeah, we would rehearse that with stand-ins. First, it was just 
Martin Wist, our production designer, and, and me in a You're taping it out, in a warehouse, or? taping it out here in L.A., just walking it, and I would play all the parts, and Martin would just sort of walk, and we'd measure and figure it out, and then then Seamus got there, and we we'd figure it out, and then we started with standards. It, luckily, I had a cast who was very we got what we were trying to do, and understood the importance of it, and understood. And, and brought their own things to it. I mean, so much of Jeff's emotion in there and what Dakota's doing and what Kaylee, who's tied to the chair, those little things that are happening are stuff they bring to it. So you can find where it goes and then adjust as you go. We, I think we did it 27 times, and that's the 27th take you see in the Was film. that one day? Yeah. And yes. did you rehearse the day before, or was we, that one we, day of rehearsal? No, we rehearsed the full weekend before. Okay. And then probably several weekends before that as, as technical rehearsals with stand-ins and just our camera. And our and the other secret weapon of that shot is our focus puller, uh, Doug Lavender, because the focus is, is insane. And Dave Emmerich, our, our first camera. Yeah, I mean, th those guys do not get enough credit because it is, when you have reflections in particular, reflections on an anamorphic uh, lens, uh, continuously moving uh, are a real nightmare. For these are things I didn't know until it happened, and then I looked at them and gave them all a big hug at the end because God bless them, those guys. Um, they were so they're, they're so talented. It was really fun. To, it was really satisfying to watch it all come together. I have to say. And and that shot, you did no coverage. No coverage, no. Right. In order, that's the thing. In order to justify the shot, you have to be really sure of it. And what I, is I have wrong to say, with you? <laughs> well, I was really sure of it. I have to say, I, I really believed that that was the way to, to show that to tell scene that story. Yeah. Because it it's it's so much about all of them in their rooms and what they're struggling with. And I, I really felt like Cynthia singing live. You know, to me, the movie. In she many was ways. amazing, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a credit to her, quite honestly, because she sang live. It's so much of the movie is not just about the about singing, but it's about the act of singing and why and how creating art when no one is watching will get you through these hard times, right? And so I, that shot sort of dictates that. And I, so I knew emotionally that's what it wanted to be. And, and I said to Cynthia, look, there's places we can cheat. There's places where the camera goes away and, and you can protect your voice because I need to protect, my job is also to protect your voice. And she said, no, let's do it because you'll start, to, if my voice starts to get raw, that will make it better. It will actually show that I'm not worrying about performing for anyone else other than, than me. And uh, you know, it's like, oh, I love you, Cynthia. That's exactly right. And so, that's her voice. There's no, I didn't swap out different takes. You know, when we go off of her, because yeah. I was like, no, that when as soon as she said that, I thought that's right. That's the right way to approach this. Let's just let it be what it is, and and go from there. And and were there are there other things in the movie where you didn't cover, like where you worked out? I mean, I know there's some, yeah, some beautiful shots. I mean, there's lots. That's the now, part. What did the, so here's point. my question. What is the, first of all, here's one of the things I also think is extraordinary. At a moment in time where the kind of movies that studios make, big studios, especially there's all kinds of consolidation going on, everyone's looking for blockbusters, um, and what you would consider as a dramatic thriller, that's not a studio film. Very rarely, at least. Um, and so to be able to, to make this and then to do it as boldly as you did, I think is, it's, it's really incredible. It's, it's a testament to you as a writer, as a director, to how much I know Emma and everybody believes in you. But still, when those things happen, and they are watching dailies, and they go, wow, that's a great shot. And take Gee, there's 27 of these. Um, <laughs> Is there uh, a moment where they go, hey, Drew, are, are we ever going to get coverage on this, or are you good with that? Or, what, or were they just like, you know what, we, are, we, we see your vision, or how did that go? I mean, it's, it's very, I, part of the reason I, I wrote this on spec, 
for this exact reason, because I want people to be very clear about what I'm trying to do and see the whole picture. And so we, it's not like they don't talk about this, but we tr I try to have those conversations before the day, right? I try to have those conversations before we're shooting. So, cause I'm a big believer in prep. I'm a big believer and I want all, I value the studio. Their, their, their insight is great. But I always say like, guys, the reason I've worked so hard on this script before we ever start is so that we can have these conversations now and we're not burning film, because mm -hmm. I hate burning film, I hate burning crew time to have these conversations. And so we try really hard to have those discussions early. And, and I, you know, I do try to be safe and, and give myself off-ramps, as I call them. Sure. Um, it, What's not, like an off-ramp? What do you mean? I, well, in general, I knew that shot was going to be a winner, so I didn't give myself an off-ramp. But if there was another shot that, uh, that we were going to hold for a long time, if there's an organic place to put a second camera so that you have it and you have a cutting point, I do try to do that. I, it's calming to me in the editing room to have options for sure, so I don't want to be disingenuous. But there are a few shots that I just knew, like, well, this is the movie, so let's right. let's not second guess. And they ourselves. were supportive of that once you had laid the groundwork to say, "Hey, that guys, this is what I want to do." Exactly. And that, and that's part of writing it on spec too, right? Did you took the, I mean, even though you had a great relationship with Fox, did you take the script to a, a number of places and say, "Hey, look, I took I'll, it to, I'm going to sell it to the place that lets me make my movie the way I want to make it." Correct. I mean, I took it to everyone, and luckily there was a great response to it. I, I do feel like we sort of self-edit these days, and and I keep hearing like, "Well, this is the type of movie that no one wants to make," and. The truth is, that's been true of every movie I've worked on. Like every movie I've worked on, when we were doing Cloverfield, they were like, "This is insane! What are you guys doing?" And when we were doing, you know, the Mar at the Martian at the time, sure. it seems obvious now, but it was like a hard sci-fi movie about gardening in your own feces. Like it, it wasn't like an easy sell <laughs> at the time. It was very much this um, thing. I, I do believe actually studios are more receptive than we think they are. Mm -hmm. I think the trick is you have to keep your costs low. You have to you have to keep your costs low so that you're not scaring them. Is that them. part of how you, when you approach this, you say, I'd like to make this in a certain range, yes. that you, and, and then, but I want to be able to do what I want to do. I, yeah, get we your, did a, I hired a UPM, we did a budget, we did, you know, I did my storyboards as much as I can. I really try to show them the whole movie ah. so that, so that they know I'm a partner and they know like, well, this is what it is. And, and I'm, so I'm you had previous, I mean, you had, you had storyboarded before some you of sold it. the script. Some, some of, it. of it. Yeah. Wow. Um, I try to give them as much, as much information as I know at the time I want them to know because right. I've learned that it actually allows us to be more bold. Right. Like if you can say, we're going to keep our costs down. And, um, so we don't have to appeal to everyone everywhere. Right. Like we don't, I, I want to take that, that fear away from you. Cause I don't want that fear either, frankly. Right. Like I'll, it, it applies to me as well. Right. Like as, as those costs go up, I recognize like we have to please everyone. That that's, that's the deal. And so I try to, I, I learned that way when we did the cabin in the woods, we, we did that. We did that exact approach and kept it, kept our costs on. And it allowed us to do some of the crazier things that we did in that movie. Mm. If we didn't, you know, we would have to please everyone, and, and I've just learned it's, uh, it's more fun to work this way. And in, in terms of your how you work with the actors, you said you have this re re rehearsal period. So you had the period where you were working at your shots, you storyboarded a lot of the shots, you brought them into to that, but what is how long was the rehearsal period with just actors? And what is that process, how much do you rehearse beforehand, and what is that nature of the rehearsal versus what you do, let's say, on the set the day of? Well, it's a, I do it in a couple of stages. The first thing I did, I think probably six weeks before shooting, I, I said, let's get all the actors together. We rented a little house here in, in um, Los Angeles, and I said, this is your, let's just get together. Because none of these actors other than Chris Hemsworth, I, I hadn't worked with any of them before. And so I said, let's, let's just get together. We'll do a read through. We'll spend a couple of days not really rehearsing, but just getting to know each other. 
And if we want to read the script, great. If if we want to do, if you want to try crazy ideas, great. It's okay. It's so much about, I call it getting rid of those first day of school jitters. Like just get comfortable with each other because we're artists, and so much of what we're doing is understanding each other's wavelengths. And it took me a while to really understand that every actor is different, and every every artist that you're working with, every crew member is different. And you and your job as a director is to listen to how they are different. So for me, it's about let's just get to know each other. And, and I was really lucky that I had such an extraordinary cast because day one, Monday morning, half hour early, Jeff Bridges shows up right before anyone else is there. He's already there trying to learn the, the PA's names and, and just trying to get to know other people. He brought his guitar. So it was like, it was the right person for this approach because when you have someone like Jeff at the top, it just radiates outward. And so it really became, you know, we spent a couple of days and then, and then as the days went on, started talking about all those little things that can kill you on a film. All, like, like how do we make these steps so that Jeff can hold Lewis at the end right. and build fire around him? Those are those things that if you don't think about them, like you're like, oh yeah, Jeff's gonna have to do this scene for, for two days, right? right? On these steps, holding this, this kid in the middle of fire. Oh, I need to go talk to my production designer about how we're gonna build padded steps and hide them and do all right. of those things. It, it's all of those, I actually am just looking for logistics, trying to spot the landmines, not, and I thought that was, it was important to not worry about performance. Right. Like I'm, I told Not them, worried like, about performance in the performance in rehearsals the, in prior in to. Prior, yeah. prior, because I was like, guys, just try stuff, because I want to be open to this stuff. Let's just see. Let's right. just get to know each other and see and live in this. And, and it worked really well, I have to say, um, because nobody felt that that need to be right. Nobody felt that need to say like, oh, this is how we need to do this scene. This is how it was just letting them start to um, understand their characters and understand me. And would and the script evolve in those at all? Yeah, I, I also said, listen, this is your time with the writer and then I'm gonna fire the writer. Uh -huh. That's what's going to happen because <laughs> I don't actually like to be the writer when I'm shooting, I like to be the director. I don't want to be constantly rewriting pages at night when I should be thinking about you know, the, uh, my shots for tomorrow. So I, I said, and that worked really well too, because then they, I could, they knew that they were being attended to and that there are any problem, any script problems or ideas they had, we could go do and I'll go put them in the script. And, and I thought that worked really well too. So we were doing, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of the approach of talking about the script as opposed to talking about the performance. And then the day of is just seeing when the magic happens and, and capture, saying like, okay, can this be hot or can this be whatever that is? Yeah, as we got closer then, I would try anytime you can. The problem with it, um, when you're shooting, time becomes a real, a real commodity and it's hard. Certainly when you have a cast like this too, it's almost a, a Jenga puzzle of everyone's schedule as you're trying to get everyone together. But any t opportunity we could, uh, once the sets were being built, because I do feel like once the sets start to go up, you want to start dialing in what you're gonna do so that I can figure out where to put lights and whatnot. And, and um, so then any chance we had, we would, we would dive in and, and sometimes it was on the weekend, sometimes it was after, after we wrapped and just get everyone together and run a scene and see what came out. Well, I've been shown that this time is up. I could keep talking Back about to, it. No. <laughs> um, it's such a beautiful film and it, I'm, I'm, it's so great to be able to talk to you. I love you, my friend. Guys, thank you so much. Thank you for coming. That really meant a lot. Thanks for being here. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as awards season approaches, including Q&As from George Tillman Jr., Allison Chernick, and Felix Van Groningen, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. 
We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show.